Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms and trials of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I am your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. Today, we are happy to be joined by Fatima Silva, a Bay Area-based criminal defense attorney who works diligently to overturn wrongful convictions and the star of Investigation Discovery's Reasonable Doubt. Welcome, Fatima. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Fatima, your entry into the law is a very personal one. And for those who are unaware, could you talk a little bit about that? I think like most attorneys who love their jobs, um, it kind of started as a child. You know, you, you just automatically were an advocate for yourself and other people. And you noticed at a young age, that's probably something you wanted to do. Um, so I noticed that, but there was uh, definitely at around the age of 12, a life-changing event where um, unfortunately I lost my brother um, in a um, train accident and it turned our world upside down. Um, I remember he was only 15 at the time, so he was young and it was some train tracks uh, near his high school, which is kind of considered um, that area of the hood. Um, of, of a little city in the Bay Area. And I remember at a young age watching my parents go through this legal battle with the railroad company. There had been issues that the rail, that the train was going too fast, that there should have been fenced off uh, areas for the students to get to school. And I just remember, you know, it was a powerful company. It was a powerful opponent. And we had this one lawyer and he was just the definition of grit. I'll never forget him. He's retired now. God bless him. He was the kind of attorney he showed up completely disheveled, you know, old <laughs> briefcase. And you're like, really? But this man had heart and he was a voice for my parents and we didn't have many resources they didn't know how to go about getting justice in this case um and I, the outcome really didn't matter to me as much when i was that young or to my parents it was just nice to have an advocate in their corner somebody who really believed in them and fought for them against and it was like a david and goliath situation and i remember thinking i, I want to be david i want to uh -huh. be you know i want to 
see that for families, that person who advocates for them and says, I hear you, I'm going to fight no matter the odds. Um, and so that's really what sparked my passion. And I remember saying, I'm going to do this for other families one day. Wow. I love that story. I love that kind of compelling, inspiring type of story that you can kind of carry with you for the rest of your career. Is, is that how you got started in kind of the civil side of things? It is how I got started in civil. Um, and so I was doing civil defense work, actually, um, a little bit of both. Um, I wanted, obviously, to get into plaintiff civil. When I graduated law school, it was Lehman, and Brother, Lehman Brothers and all of that, 2009, 2008. Yeah. It was um, terrible, I remember, um, you know, looking for work. And really, I think the most common work is a lot of civil defense. Um, so we were doing, I was working at a firm that did civil defense. And I remember we got a case in. And... Um, it was about, it was defending civilly, defending somebody who was alleged to have committed a criminal act. And I thought, well, how does, you know, I'm a new attorney and how does this even intersect? I don't understand. Um, and I remember learning at that time, you know, if this person had an umbrella policy to this day, I'm like, everybody have an umbrella policy, <laughs> some additional liability. Um, and because that covered him, even because some of the alleged acts were negligence. Um, and so that's kind of how I dabbled into a criminal case for the very first time while doing civil work. And is what you do now completely criminal? It is now. I have. Or I should be more, more specific. Crim completely criminal defense. <laughs> <laughs> completely criminal. All of it. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Criminal defense is um, I, I did civil for a very long time. I love civil in that it really challenges you. It keeps you up to date on law. It's. Um, it's very hard work, um, but I decided I wanted to go full criminal. It's just my passion. And so um, I have one last final civil case left that is still keeping me on my toes with all that discovery. <laughs> very cool. What, what has been your experience? Because I'll share with you a little bit of mine, but I, I was at the DA's office and having left there to go criminal defense, all of my former colleagues and friends kind of view it as, oh boy, he's gone to the dark side now. Do you get any of that kind of pushback or, or teasing from folks about like, how can you do that? How can, the question always is, how can you defend those people? Do you get any of that? And what is your response? All the time. I hear all the time, how do you sleep at night? Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm like, um, you know, I do take it to heart. I know um, I work actually um, in, a, in an office space with a lot of former public defenders and um, they, I, I admire them a lot. When you are a public defender, you get a case. It doesn't matter whether you want that case. It doesn't matter whether, you know, you morally you are aligned with your defendant. It doesn't matter. You have to zealously defend them. And I love public defenders for those reasons. I was a little different. I, I did not start as a public defender. As a matter of fact, when I started, Joshua, I was very hesitant to become a criminal defense attorney because I had oh, wow. those exact thoughts. I thought, how am I going to be able to sleep at night? Ew, I don't want to do that. Right. Those people are terrible. As I started to dabble in it more and more and perhaps defend family members and friends, I started <laughs> to realize, you know, good things happen. I mean, bad things often happen to good people. And sometimes it's just wrong place, wrong time. Sometimes it is something that the person is, you know, it's their choice and, and they're making these bad choices. But um, because of my history, um, and honestly, this, this surprises people, but I always proclaim it, I'm Christian. And when I read my Bible, I'm telling you, Jesus talks about justice a lot. And that's, that rings true to me, that 
there needs to be somebody who is the voice for the voiceless. And that's how I think um, when, as a defense attorney, I feel like I am being the voice for this person who is being persecuted. And really, what is the evidence at this point, right? But it's also about their families. Everything is affected for someone when they're going through a criminal trial, their livelihood, their reputation, and um, everyone's affected. So it's really a privilege for me to yeah. defend people who are alleged to have committed crimes. And I tell people all the time, wait until one of your family members needs a criminal defense attorney and your mind is really gonna, you're gonna think differently. You, the yeah. last thing you're gonna think about is how does that person sleep at night? You're gonna say, I hope that they do the best job they can do for my loved one. Yeah, no, that's a great way of putting it. I I had the same experience where I felt like, um, I'm, am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to defend these, these quote unquote criminals? And then like you pointed out, you find out, these these are folks like anybody else and 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 they've made some mistakes and some of those mistakes are serious and some of those mistakes are not so serious but the ramifications were huge you know maybe they drank a little bit too much or maybe they cut some corners or maybe they you know you know got got sent an extra paycheck and just didn't let anybody know about it and before you know it snowballed out of control and now they find themselves you know on the other end of an indictment but that doesn't make them necessarily bad people or criminals and that that was one thing that really kind of um, it was an awakening to me because when you're in the DA's office, that's the way you view it, right? It's this long kind of conveyor belt of case after case after case and everybody with a rap sheet. And so you start to think of anybody who's charged with a crime must be a quote unquote criminal. And it's just not true. And it doesn't um, define them. I actually was, uh, my, my uh, mentor was a um, prosecutor first. He was actually a homicide detective, then he oh, wow. was a prosecutor. And then he became a defense attorney. And I learned from him, um, God rest his soul, and he always taught me, you know, if, if they really did it and all the evidence is there, then if the prosecutor does a good job, you're going to sleep at night fine, fine knowing you fought it. Um, but, you know, justice will will prevail. Um, and if they didn't do it or they deserve a second chance, then be very compelling for that person. And, and that's how I looked at it. So I think personally, defense attorneys have more heart than anyone else. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> um, but let's talk about wrongful convictions, because that's something that you've certainly gotten into in the, in the last few years of your career, maybe longer. I don't know. But that's a little different and help explain that for for listeners that we're now not talking about, you know, you defend people before a trial. But now we've talked about somebody who's been convicted and maybe in prison for several years before you even had a chance to look at the case. Tell us how you got into that world and, and what that is like. I've always been interested in that world. Uh, just in practice, you notice how people get railroaded, right? Um, in I've been practicing over 10 years. You see, if you, if you can't afford an attorney, doesn't mean that you know, you're gonna lose because you have a public defender. I'm in the Bay Area. We have amazing public defenders, but not having the resources can really work against you, right? Um, even public defenders, court appointed, you have to request budget for experts for your defense. Um, and if you have the money for all of that, for the best of the best, you're gonna have a better outcome. So I started to see that just in my personal practice um, and it seemed very unfair. And then as I began to you know, study more um, cases and really get into it, you start to realize the numbers, right? They say one, in, one to 4% of our country's population, prison population, can be innocent, one to 4%. Wow. We take our nation's prison population and we take a percent of that 
That's 87,000 folks in prison in the United States that are possibly innocent. That number is one, being innocent in, in prison should be enough for us, but 87,000 people proclaiming their innocence that have been wrongfully convicted. That number shocks me. And um, I, so I always had a passion for that, but the appeals process was something that, you know, it's, in the, it's a total different practice area. And I had dabbled in it, but I wasn't quite equipped. And then somehow I got the opportunity to do the show. And it's the show that's really enlightened me um, on just the stat, the numbers and how how awful it is, the, the things that can happen to people. I didn't know those figures and those numbers. When you initially say one to four percent, I think some people might think, well, that's not that bad, right? I mean, we're talking like a, a 99, 97 to 99% of true convictions. But when you look at the absolute numbers, what did you say, 87,000? 87,000. That is That's uh, That's shocking. an estimate. And I have to be honest, those numbers are, are changing because um, with the cell phone data, uh, there was a lot happening when we started to get cell phone data, but the analysis of cell phone data wasn't as up to date. And it's con- it's now getting more and more advanced, but we've had like over a decade, almost 20 years of cell phone data that have put a lot of people behind bars when experts couldn't even quite understand exactly how to pinpoint a person's location. So jurors have been told false information. So they think that number could be more than 4%. Yeah. Wow. And those advances in different technologies is something I hope that we're going to be able to touch on. You you bring about cell phones. I was thinking about uh, DNA and how our perception of that is changing, Uh, even videotape. For people who aren't familiar with the show, we're talking about reasonable doubt. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got involved yourself and then what is like the mission of the show? So I, I personally just got a call one day from someone who said, um, you know, we, we have this show. It's, um, it's called Reasonable Doubt. And what we do is we are looking for basically it's families of the convict who come to us and they say, look, we think our loved one was wrongfully convicted of murder. And these are our leads. These are things that have kept us up all these years. And we're talking anywhere from five years to we've handled cases that are like 30 years old. Um, So these families have been fighting for years. They're going through the appeals process and they say, we've never had these answers. And we think that these answers are, are, you know, these are going to show that our loved one was wrongfully convicted. So they bring us in to what we do when I say we is myself as a criminal defense attorney um, and my partner, who is a former homicide detective out of uh, Birmingham, Alabama, Christopher Anderson. He's actually from the first 48. So um, he retired to do this show. And oh, wow. I think, you know, the producers had in mind, let's have kind of this the scales of justice balanced, right? We've got a criminal defense lawyer and a homicide detective and together they need to evaluate this case and, and let this family know, listen, we we you know we want to help you we do think your loved one was wrongfully convicted or we cannot free your loved one they're likely not wrongfully convicted or there's just no evidence here that they are so in essence what we do is we have to free the family from the fight and that is probably our biggest mission because if you look at the numbers right one to four percent of people are wrongfully convicted if we have 10 cases a season um, we normally only have two to three cases that we can get behind. 
Wow. If it were more, if it were more, that should be scary for our system, yeah. right? Um, yeah. But I think that number kind of reflects what we're looking at in our justice system. So majority of the time, I'm actually sitting across from families. And this is really hard as a defense attorney, because, you know, we don't have to do this. We don't have to sit there and say, stop this fight, let go. They're guilty. I, I hate I hate doing that. That's why I do criminal defense, because I just keep fighting and fighting. Um, but we have to do that for this show. And it's it's really hard. But um, a lot of times the families come back and say, thank you. I needed that. I, I needed to just let go of this fight. I'm tired. Yeah. I've mortgaged my house. I've turned to alcohol. I can't take a vacation. These are people who have been trapped behind bars with their loved ones who need permission to be free from the fight. Wow. And you make such a powerful point that there might not be another person in their life who's going to tell them that. I, I, I imagine that all their, their loved ones and friends are telling them, you know, yeah, keep it going. You got to keep strong. You got to keep fighting. And for somebody, you know, an uninvolved, objective persons who are, you know, in this field and know what they're talking about to say, you know what, it's time to put it to rest. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that brings a, a, an incredible sense of relief to some people. Yeah. I mean, think about it. It's like, it's kind of like having a therapist, right? You're like, I want somebody who's objective and independent and, you know, neutral. And so from their point of view, the the prosecutor had a a bias in it. The defense attorney was collecting a paycheck. The judge, you know, everyone's biased. Their friends who tell them, keep fighting. Oh, they're lying to me just to make me feel better. Their friends who say, let go. Oh, you know, they just never believed in the case. But to have two people in front of you that say, we're completely independent. You know, we have we this outcome does not affect us we just want you to have answers i think it does bring them some peace that's either way yeah one one thing i noticed when i was binge watching it this weekend uh is i mean you know like you said being a being a prosecutor being a defense attorney we're we're kind of used to being uh in these high highly emotional situations Boy, when you're sitting down talking to these folks who are ripped apart on both sides, right? You oftentimes get involved with the victim's friends and family as well while you're doing this. How? A question I was so glad I would be able to ask you in person is, how has that been difficult on you to sit there and have those conversations? Very difficult. It's very, it never gets easy. It really doesn't. Yeah. I'm now in season four, um, and it... it, it it doesn't seem to get easier. I The only way I can think about it is I feel called to do it. Um, I think it's an honor and a privilege as much as it's also difficult to do. I, I wouldn't trust many people with these families' hearts, with the victim's wow. family. with And so I know where I come from. I know where my intentions lie. Um, and so in that, I just kind of pray up before and ask God, you know, give me the strength to, to speak um, the right words to this family to help them understand because um, this is a it, it can be devastating for a family to have to finally see the truth um, or for a family who has not allowed themselves to have hope and then you give them that hope and you see them break in front of you. Ooh, I mean, I, if you saw the episodes, you see I ugly cry yeah. all the time, Joshua. It's embarrassing. <laughs> I'm like, can you cut? I've had to tell right. them cut. I'm just like, ugh. That's too much. And then you sometimes get an opportunity to speak with the defendants serving time as well, right? And and, and I was as I was watching the show, the other thing that I found remarkable is this really plays on some of our worst fears, right? Is the idea 
of being accused of something we have nothing to do with, but no way of proving that it's not us. And and a, one of these stories in particular involving a young man where he's being interviewed, and at one point he breaks down and he says, you think it's me. And you could tell that he felt the whole world crushing in on him that I can't believe I'm sitting here being accused of this horrible crime. It's a really powerful uh, show. Okay, so a couple of ones I wanted to jump into, and then if we have time, maybe you tell us about uh, some of the things that stood out to you. But uh, in season three, uh, there's an episode involving involving Michael Crump. Um, This is in March of 1996. Michael was convicted of first-degree murder and was sentenced to 37 years in prison. Uh, The crime took place in 1995 in Roanoke, Virginia. A small group of friends were hanging out when a gunman in a black hoodie burst in and shot a drug dealer named Eric Jones. One witness stepped forward, claiming she could identify the shooter as Michael Crump. However, it was very dark, and the witness, we find out, had a very serious eye disease. Michael's mother and sister were convinced that he was innocent. Um, So tell us a little bit about this and... One of the first things I was hoping you could talk about, especially with the subject matter we cover on this show, is he had a bench trial for a murder case. Could you tell us about that and why that's so extra- extraordinary? Oh, my goodness. Well, you, you know, as most people may not know, when you have a criminal trial, um, you are entitled to a jury trial or a bench trial. It's the trial of your choosing. And um, I'd say nine times out of 10, a a good defense attorney is going to pick a a jury trial. Um, The reason is when you're dealing with any kind of issue, um, especially street crimes where judges see that often, and I think at a certain point they become um, jaded to it, you know, like like a lot of people, if you've ever been the victim of one, um, you you don't want to put your life in, in the hands of one person. And I think more and more as people see uh, what's happening in the world and how judges can have bias and everything else, you don't want to just tr- trust that one person. You really want to be able to um, have a, a jury of your peers make this decision. That You want 12 individuals of sound mind. You want them to be able to hear all the evidence and decide. You really want them to be able to evaluate all of the evidence and um, and, and see you as a human, right? Like this could be my child, my brother. Um, and so in this case, it's devastating. We've had a, a lot of cases on our show, not surprisingly, that um, for some reason, the defense att- attorneys chose bench trials. Not just that, this trial was one day, Joshua. Incredible. And it's, uh, it's mind blowing because it's taken away his life. Um, yeah. One thing I want to make clear that we uh, get a lot on our show is um, eyewitness testimony, individuals who are convicted with just eyewitness testimony. This means there's no other evidence, um, no other direct evidence, but that eyewitness. And something I've learned since doing the show is over 70% of overturned convictions were based on eyewitness testimony. That is terrifying because as people, we think, oh, you can trust me. I saw it with my own eyes. When you can hear that testimony, it's almost more comforting than any circumstantial, right? It's like, well, that person sounded confident. And on this show, I get access to a lot of jurors who served on these cases. And they, one thing they all share in common is, well, I really believe that person because they were confident, that confidence could convince somebody of anything. And so if you're confident in what you saw, whether you saw it right or wrong, the jury's going to believe you. And this is how we end up with 70% of overturned convictions. 
And that's this case. Uh, this case was interesting because there was no other evidence. Um, we're, we're dealing with an eyewitness who, uh, when she first calls 911 and they ask for her descriptions, she says, I couldn't see it was dark. She couldn't even it, she couldn't even decide if it was a black man or not because she says it was dark. Um, she described just that he had a hoodie on. It took nine days for her to pick out Mr. Crump in a lineup. And guess who's the only one in a lineup with a hoodie on? So it's just, and, and on top of all this, she has a very severe eye disease. She had gone through multiple surgeries. And as you saw on the show, when I met with her, her eyes were, were really, really bad. She's never really regained full eyesight. So on top of everything else, she's got bad eyesight in a dark room. Um, and she's making this identification, you know, days later after she said she wouldn't be able to identify anybody at all. So it's devastating that this is what put this man behind bars. Yeah. You know, uh, it, there's a whole industry behind uh the analysis of um, eyewitness identifications. There are experts who travel the country, I'm sure you're aware, that this is all they do, is talk about the problems with eyewitness identification. You've got issues such as cross-racial identification when you're dealing with people of different race trying to identify someone. It's just, it's just there's data to support the fact that it's more difficult. Um, you've got things like weapons fixation, which I imagine played a role here, where if a gun's being pointed at someone, they're looking at the gun. Mm -hmm. They're not looking at the face and the features, especially underneath a hoodie at night or in the dark. Um, I, it, it, this case was, like I said, one of the ones that really stuck out to me because I thought there was so much here for the defense to dig into and to present, but instead it turned into a glorified preliminary hearing where it's taking place in one day in front of a judge. And you made that point about, you know, judges are kind of used to hearing this and they don't react the same way. The other problem is that as a defense attorney, you know this, that in most jurisdictions, you just got to convince one or two folks. And as long as you're able to even hang that jury, you're, you're, you're at least getting protecting your client to some extent. But here there's one person. Tell me where things stand now. So for folks who haven't seen the show, the show usually ends with either you telling folks that you, you, you don't believe there's more that you can do or you telling folks that you want to get involved and help them. What what happens after that? After that, normally what we do is um, when we do decide to help a family, we um, hire a local investigator to really dig deeper into their case. And we're not just looking for evidence based on the leads that we found. We're looking for a lot more. And one thing we find is years and years later, people come forward. People are ready to, if they were witness, a lot of times they're recanting testimony. They're saying, I was exposed to jail time. You know, the prosecutors were holding that over my head. I felt like I had to say this. Or people who were afraid, right, who lived in the community wow. who didn't speak up. It happens all the time. Now they're ready to talk because they're not so fearful. It's been many years later. Um, so we get an investigator to go around and kind of start the investigation from scratch again. Um, and then oftentimes we'll work uh, myself more than my partner because he, he's a, a homicide detective. He goes back to working cold cases once he gets back to Alabama. I will normally work with the investigator or the appeals lawyer. We um, normally will have an appeals lawyer in that within that state working on the case because what people don't understand is I'm a California attorney. 
Um, I would love to take on cases across the country, but I am not going to be the best person because I'm not knowledgeable in the appeals process within your state. So I work together with the appeals lawyer, trying to be a resource, but also writing letters and support to just get the person paroled early. Um, and we just stay in touch. And right now I can tell you on Michael Crump's case, we did get the Innocence Project, um, their local Innocence Project on that case. So they are working tirelessly. And if you know the Innocence Project, they're going to they're gonna do all everything that they can to make sure that if this is a wrongful conviction, um, you know, they get justice for Michael Crump. So it, it's years and years of work later, though. We've, I'm still working on cases from season two, um, individuals who still haven't. Um, you know, seen a release or even been granted an appeal. So it's a lot of work. And that's another incredible thing about that show is it's not just the show for the purpose of that episode. And then you guys pack up and go on to the next town, but you're, things are happening with these cases. The progress Mm -hmm. is being made with these cases. It's absolutely incredible. Speaking of season two, the other one that stood out to me is, is the story of Casey Grondin. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, but um, this was the young man that we had talked about a little bit at the beginning who has this breakdown during his um, his interrogation by the police, which I would love for you to kind of go into for us. But um, we're talking about a 19-year-old going to college, participating in marching band in high school, was an honor roll student, had no prior record, and his girlfriend is tragically killed in 2011. Four years later, Casey was convicted of first-degree murder with little to no evidence. DNA analysis proved that the male DNA found under the victim's fingernails at the, at the crime scene didn't belong to Gronin. Fingerprint analysis proved that the male fingerprints found at the crime scene didn't belong to Gronin. A debit card that was stolen from the victim at the time of the crime was being used at a Speedway gas station in Davidson, Michigan, while Casey Gronin was um, proved to be in Leper, Leper Michigan, pardon me. Um, and he was refused. This, this is another thing that just disturbed me. He was refused legal representation while the Michigan State Police interrogated him. Um, mm-hmm. Jump in. <laughs> Tell us about this. Ooh. I guess my first question is, how did a prosecution like this even get off the ground with all of the kind of evidentiary problems that they had with it? I want to first start by saying uh, the good news in this case is Mr. Grandin is awaiting a retrial. And that makes me very happy. Um, I, I wish, obviously, that he would you know, be able to get out. Um, he is home. He's, he's been home on bail, wow. um, on, on home detention since before COVID started. So then he was really on, wow. on home detention with everyone. Um, but he is awaiting a new trial. And we're really hoping that this time around the jury sees the, the jury sees the truth. I'll tell you what is difficult that a lot of people couldn't get past on this case. And, and it's probably the, the thing you realize that most people just couldn't get past is the only thing tying him to the scene of the crime is a piece of her hair that had dry blood on it that was found on his clothing in his laundry basket, one hair. And so even my partner had a very difficult time. You know, he's a homicide detective. He's like, how does that hair get there? It's a dry, it's got her dry blood on it. For me, I looked at the whole case and that that hair could be explained many ways, right? Not only do we have investigators who are at the crime scene now going to his house to actually gather evidence. So there's that cross-contamination possibility. 
he's also at the house waiting for her. And at the time she's already murdered, she's in a basement. She's been tied up and shot in the head. That is not what you normally see in, in a, a, an abusive kind of relationship or even a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. And they, they had no history of abuse. For Everybody says they had a, a wonderful uh, relationship. And But he is at the house that day sitting on the porch um, and he's waiting for her. And there's the possibility that the person who committed this crime had that hair on them when they left. And it's at the scene. I, I have come up with so many other ideas as to how this one piece of hair got on him. But what's really important is the hair that's on his sweats. Um, it's dry blood and there's no blood on his sweats, meaning it didn't get on him when it was wet. It's just this flyaway piece of hair. Very interesting. Um, and so that was what did it in that. And they used all this other uh, you know, circumstantial evidence because he was supposed to be at the house with her that night. But when you really look at this case, nothing ever sat well with me. It didn't sit right because they just all their text messages seem like they were really excited to hang out that night. She even tells him, can you hurry up and come meet me? I'm scared to be in this house alone. And once again, the way that the murder was done is not what you usually see as a, with a boyfriend, girlfriend, you usually see strangulation, something like that. Um, but what ended up happening, the worst part of all of this is, um, and, and you can see it on video, is these officers interrogating him. And what they use here is, is a very popular, um, now illegal in many areas, read method. And the read method is officers it was used on um, the central park five it's these off you know it's when police officers and law enforcement they're telling you over and over you did this they're not giving you breaks they've got you in there for hours they're not feeding you the ac is on you're freezing they're they're exhausting you and they're pounding it into you saying you did this just tell us you did this just i mean we get it you were mad you were jealous just tell us and after you hear that for hours and hours on end and this happens it's very common more common than people like to think you break someone and that's what happened Casey Grandin broke and he said you just like you said you think I did this and then he started to try to give them the story that they were giving him and it still doesn't even fit the evidence but he just thought well let me just say this so I can go home because that's a big thing they say just tell us the truth you'll probably go home um, and it's so disturbing because here's another statistic for you this will blow people's minds one in three people who have been proven innocent by DNA falsely confess. <laughs> Incredible. Why Incredible. would somebody falsely confess if they didn't do it? Why? Because of situations like this. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting quirk of human psychology that I think that if you're not in this world and know the figures like you do and have seen instances of it actually happening, people just as a gut instinct thinks think it's impossible. And I think that's a problem with these types of interrogations and presenting that in front of a jury with very little corroborating evidence otherwise, is that people can't imagine why would you ever confess to something you didn't do? That's just, it, it, it doesn't seem like something they could ever twist their brains around to understanding. But as you point out, when you're isolated and you're locked up and you're a young man and you haven't spoken to anyone and you haven't had a chance to speak to a lawyer and you haven't had a chance to speak to your parents and all of this starts crashing down on you and you you begin to believe that maybe the only way out of this for you is just to start agreeing with everything they're saying and i think that's mm -hmm. understandable but something that jurors might not appreciate and, and it's amazing how like you said how often it really really does happen 
Where? So I, I think you hinted at it this a little bit. So where do things stand for him now? He's looking at a new trial. He is looking at a new trial. I haven't been in touch with his attorney recently. I think they're really busy, uh, you know, preparing for this and they don't want too much information to get out. He, he was told also he couldn't discuss the case anymore as a, you know, a condition of being released. Um, so he's not doing any um, kind of media or anything of that nature, but there's a lot of people behind him. And I believe that the truth is going to come out this time. I, I really do hope, I, I, I still have faith in our justice system. Um, and I think that there needs, there are so many other explanations in this case for who murdered this poor young girl and her family deserves justice just as much as Casey Grandin's family. Um, I, you know, that he was only 19 years old. How devastating to think about your, your child is being interrogated by the police and they're trying their best to be respectful and do what they can because that's what young people are told, right? That's what we teach our children. So the thing that I love about this show and the way that I look at it, it's not a show for other attorneys or you know anybody in law enforcement. I think they'll enjoy it, but really our show we hope is for jurors, potential jurors, because every single person watching, every citizen is a potential juror and we want them to see things in a different light and question everything. Um, and in this situation, what's really important, and I think a lesson for a lot of parents, this case and another case we had is uh, he wasn't necessarily a juvenile. He was over the age of 18, but he was young and he had never had any kind of criminal history. So never encountered law enforcement. He wants to be as helpful as possible. His girlfriend went missing. He's not going to say, look, I'm not going to say anything until I have an attorney present. Sorry. No. He asks and then he continues speaking because that's what young people want to do. We're all taught just be respectful. Speak with the police. If you're innocent, then it's going to come out. And then Very you end up point. in this scenario. So I tell all parents now, please tell your children, whether they're a part of a crime or not, unless they're just an eyewitness and want to assist, if there's somebody else who could possibly be a suspect in any way, or even if not, just tell your children, I will not speak until I have a parent present. I will not speak until I have a lawyer present. I apologize if that's disrespectful, but that's what I've been taught. No further comment. That's it. Good stuff. Good stuff. Fatima, these were all fascinating cases, and I thank you so much for coming on this week. Where, where can people find out more about you? Uh, so about me, you could find me on all platforms of social media, Fatima Silva ESQ, Fatima Silva Esquire on Twitter, um, Facebook, Instagram, and then um, if you go, if you have a case to submit, you could submit it on myreasonabledoubt.com if you know of anybody who, who may be wrongfully convicted. Um, and to check out our episodes, you go to idgo.com or check out um, ID Channel, and um, you can find some episodes of Reasonable Doubt there. Excellent. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. Thank you for joining us at True Crime Daily Sidebar.